Welcome to Buddha the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Nirmala. Welcome, Nirmala. Hi, Rick. Nice to be here. Yeah. Um, here's a little bio about Nirmala on his website, which is endless-satsang.com. After a lifetime of spiritual seeking, Nirmala met his teacher, Neelam, whom I interviewed a few weeks ago, or a month, a devotee of H.W.L. Punja, Papaji. She convinced him that seeking wasn't necessary, and after experiencing a profound spiritual awakening in India, he began offering satsang and non-dual spiritual mentoring with Neelam's blessing. This tradition of spiritual wisdom has been most profoundly disseminated by Ramana Maharshi, a revered saint who was Papaji's teacher, and, uh, oh, and Nirmala's perspective was also profoundly expanded by his friend and teacher, Adya Shanti. Okay, so where would you like to begin? Uh, how about right here, right now? <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. I, I listen to, as I often do, to many hours of your talks, your couple of hours of Never Not Here, and both of your books, and uh, a lot of your satsangs. And I know you, you even said in one of your satsangs that at any given time you, you tend to have a kind of a theme that you like to dwell on in your satsangs, and then maybe over time sure. it, it becomes a different theme. So what's your theme these days? Uh, actually, my thing these days is right here, right now. It's just uh -huh. a recognition that all there is is this one beingness, this one consciousness, and that every experience of it is is equally profound, equally beautiful. That all, in a sense, you know, we, we a lot of spiritual seekers are are looking for that big spiritual realization, mm -hmm. and even even when it comes, then beyond that is the recognition that every moment is a realization. Every moment you're realizing something about your being, mm -hmm. whether it's your ability to uh, experience the biggest truth or whether it's your, experience, your ability, your capacity to be fully identified with the ego and lost in illusion. That's, that's part of the, the, the capacity of your being. Mm. So what I hear you saying here when you refer to your being is really not an individual thing we're, we're talking about our essential being which is you know we could say cosmic which which sort of uh, is without limitation yeah. whatsoever and, and which contains the whole universe or universes and so on and you know that's your being right right okay. but, but within that within that being that that includes your your individual being right your you know your experience of being a particular human being mm -hmm. so that's that's like a subset within that right. and so everything that you realize everything that you experience everything that you discover about this is is profound is is mysterious is is worth uh, exploring worth yeah. discovering and we might say who's discovering you know yeah. uh, is it is it that just the individuality is discovering, or is it that cosmic being that you know is has evolved infinite number of individualities as to as little sensory right, right. <laughs> apparatus <laughs> different fingertips right yeah yeah, yeah. and and it 's probably both you yeah know? i mean some some realizations happen right here, you know some realizations don 't fit <laughs> within the individual separate self. You know, to realize it, you, you have to be out here. You have to be bigger than that. Mm -hmm. So it's, I, I, you know, uh, another theme that actually has lasted for years and years and years is that 
the truth is whatever the way you measure the truth is by how big a sense of self it gives you and so if something gives you a sense of self like this, that, that doesn't mean it's wrong. It doesn't mean it's not part of the truth. It just means that it's a very narrow or limited truth. And when something gives you a sense of self that is you know, beyond your body, beyond your, your usual identification, that just happens to be a much bigger truth, mm. much more complete. So it's like the, the measuring stick you can use to... to you know, to determine how true things are, how real, how important. So if you go and watch Close Encounters of the Third Kind and you come out feeling all expanded and wonderful and all, maybe there's more truth in that movie than if you go and watch some slasher flick and you come out feeling all <laughs> kind of yucky and violent. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it, or it evoked a bigger truth in you, you mm-hmm. know, a bigger sense of possibility, a bigger sense of connectedness to the to the greater you know, possibilities and, and realities out there. Mm. Now, a minute ago you said something about, uh, you know, even if you're completely identified and, and caught up in the illusion, that's just as profound or maybe in some way as having some, you know, expanded kind of cosmic experience. Yeah, it's, it is, it's different. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. when, when you're contracted, it's different than when you're expanded. When you're identified, it's different than when you're either disidentified or identified with something truer. So, you know, whether it's equally profound, you know, it, it, just, it, it just is. You know, it just still has value. It still has reality. Some of the experiences we have have very, very little reality. You know, very, very little truth. My, fa- my favorite example I always use of... Uh, uh, something that's true but not very true is a lottery ticket, because <laughs> because if you buy a lottery ticket, it's it it's absolutely true that you could win. That no one can deny that it's 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 within the realm of possibilities. Unfortunately, it's not very true. You know, it's like unfortunately, it's like ridiculously <laughs> small <Yeah>. truth. <laughs> and so some of our Realization, some of, you know, when we realize the capacity of our being to become very overly identified with some, you know, hurt feeling within us, it, you know, it, it's, it's real, it's, it's meaningful, but not very. Yeah. You know, yeah, so. they, they say lotteries are taxes on the arithmetically challenged. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good, it's not a good retirement plan. Right. Uh. Well, it's interesting because, you know, as, as individuals, we have our druthers, you know. I'd rather be sitting on the rim of the Grand Canyon enjoying the view than in some Syrian prison being tortured or something. There's yeah. definitely preferences we have as, as individuals. But if you think about it, again, from the perspective of the cosmic self, I'm both of those, yeah. do, you know, undergoing both of those experiences for whatever right. reason. So when you know when you focus on that preference, you, your sense of self will get very small. It's interesting how whether you focus on the positive side of it or the negative side of it, you know, if you focus on the the possibility of being tortured, you know, you can get very contracted. But if you focus on the the desire, you know, the because you're not, I can tell, not sitting on the rim of the Grand Canyon right now. You know, if you if you <laughs> you're focus a lot closer on that, to it. Yeah, yeah, but still <laughs> a couple hours away. <laughs> But if you focus on that desire, even though it's a positive desire, even though it's a 
positive illusion, you could say. When you focus on it, your 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 sense of self, your awareness, your experience becomes very narrow, very contracted. It has to be in order to stay in touch with something that's just an image in your mind. That's a very small reality. So you have to get very small to inhabit it, to you know fully experience it. So when you say focus on it, do you mean that when you're you're, you kind of dwell on the, the your, your your fulfillment is contingent upon the achievement of a desire, and you're kind of dwelling on that desire, and I, and with the kind of orientation that you won't be fulfilled until that desire is is gratified. Yeah, that's that's one of the ways to focus on it. Anything that kind of pumps it up, keeps it going, elaborates on it. You know, a lot of times the the first thought that we have that takes us into you know a small reality is not, you know, it's just like you can have a passing thought. Like I can tell you that the, the walls in this room are kind of a, 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 a putty-colored beige. Mm-hmm. So what? You know, it's like, okay, that thought just goes, you know. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't it's have only much a, significance. Right. But if I tell you, you know, there's, there, uh, you know, like a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a solar eclipse that happened on the, you know, you could watch it from the rim of the Grand Canyon. Hmm. If I had told you that two days before and you were like, oh, God, I'd love the Grand Canyon. Oh, wouldn't that be cool to be to see a solar eclipse on the Grand Canyon, you know, and, and there's condors there and maybe I'd see a condor and, you, you know, and it's like those are each each little thought is is adding to that sense of contraction just by maintaining it just mm-hmm. by keeping you involved with it. It's not, you know, the default position is for your awareness to open up. Yeah. That's, that's what naturally happens when you're not thinking, when you're not, in a sense, focusing. Well, it kind of se- seems to me to depend on how you're wired. And, uh, and, you, uh-huh. can, and you can re- change your wiring over time. But, you know, there might be some people who are in Iowa who would love to be at the rim of the Grand Canyon watching the eclipse or the sunset or whatever. Um, but, you know, it's not going to bum their day if they don't get to go. You know, it's like because there's yeah. a certain certain baseline of contentment that's not dependent upon, you know, whether this or the other desire is fulfilled or not. And there are right. other people whose, whose whole – I mean, I know people who moved – you know, so many times because they get to a place and after a while they feel they're not fulfilled and they'll be more fulfilled if they move somewhere else. And then, right. they, then they go through all the trouble of moving somewhere else and then the same thing happens again they, and they just right. don't see it. They just keep doing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. They, in, uh, in psychotherapy, they call that the geographic cure. Yeah. <laughs> Where people go and try and cure all that ails them by moving. Right. Or getting a yeah. new partner or whatever, you know, the people who've been married eight times and whatnot. Right. And <laughs> you know, you said you said it's different depending on your wiring, it's also different depending on your life experience, your conditioning, which things. You know, some people you mentioned the Grand Canyon and they get bored. You know, yeah. they wouldn't be interested at all. So the specific content is unique for every individual. And especially the specific stuff that that can get us not just not just momentarily contracted, but can get us kind of like on a roll, you know, mm-hmm. where we're where we're we're totally engaged with that with that little fantasy or that fear or that hope or that wish or that doubt or that worry, you know, we it's like we're we're rolling with it, we're going with it, mm-hmm. and you know, even uh, you know, even people who are are very very free in most respects, you can often find something that 
will push, like we say, push their buttons. Oh, yeah. Know, something that will put them into that, into that contracted state. I don't think I've ever I've met anybody or very few people who don't still have some buttons that could be pushed. You know, I've, oh, met, I've met some pretty enlightened people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and of course, the good, the good news is that consciousness is not harmed by being contracted. Yeah. Like I said, that's one of its capacities. In fact, you know, if you're, if you're eating chocolate, the, the absolute best thing you can do is contract your, the hell out of your consciousness. You know, why, why be in cosmic consciousness when you're eating chocolate? That's like a total waste of good chocolate. You well, know, this is not... an interesting point, and, and I actually thought about this a lot when I was listening to your various talks. Um, and it's sort of, I guess we could frame this point in the, with a phrase, which would be, you know, the ability, <laughs> letting a dog out, the, yeah. the, <laughs> the ability to focus sharply and yet yeah. maintain broad comprehension. Uh -huh. and, um, and that, to my uh, knowledge, definition, would be what I would call cosmic consciousness. In other words, that cosmic awareness, unbounded awareness, is maintained while you're performing brain surgery or uh -huh. flying an air, you know, fly, landing a 747 in a snowstorm or you know, doing something that demands tremendous focus. Yeah. Um, and, the, and in fact, that the focusing is actually enhanced or improved by the broad comp by the ability to maintain broad comprehension. Otherwise, the big picture is lost somehow. Yeah, you know. And, and I, you know, I may I maybe say it a little bit differently in that I I I describe it as a flexibility. Yeah, yeah. And that and that you know in the actual moment where you're um, trying to work your way around one of the major blood vessels of the brain <laughs> when you're doing brain surgery. The, the predominance might be very focused. Yeah, absolutely. Laser-like. Laser-like. And you might and be standing there for 10 hours focusing like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and yet in any moment, like when you put down the scalpel and for a minute you, you know, take a drink of water, you're just, you know, and the nurse is wiping your brow, the sweat uh -huh. from your brow, you know, in that moment you can just slip back into a much more expanded state. And so... Whether it's whether it's like a simultaneous thing where you're focused and expanded at the same time, or whether it's just this flexibility, in a sense, you know, to me, the the value of the big expanded states is when, when they bring you to this place where it just doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And they br bring you to a place where you know that's what you are. You know that's what what's you know that's possible in any moment at any time, and so. It, it doesn't matter anymore whether right now you're doing brain surgery or eating chocolate or whether right now you're just uh, literally sitting on the rim of the Grand Canyon and just <laughs> loving the, the spaciousness, the literal spaciousness in front of you. I think, I think the word flexibility is very apt. And um, I think it's something unique about human beings that they're able to incorporate within their experience a very broad range of spectrum spectra yeah. uh, of, of reality yeah. and and to do so in such a way that it's not a black white on off kind of uh, arrangement but yeah. you know you're performing the brain surgery yet that sort of broad awareness can can be there kind of like in the background it's not like you have to yeah. sort of sit and just dwell in that you'd, you'd kill the, the patient probably if you did <laughs> exactly <laughs> but yeah. that it's it's there you know despite uh, the the sharp focus, or it can be. I mean, maybe it isn't for many people. In fact, I wanted to get onto that a little, in a little bit about you know you mentioned illusion earlier, and it seems that 
the vast majority of people in the world are, uh, you know, very much in the matrix, you know, very much yeah. ca caught in the illusion to the uh, exclusion of or uh, in, unaware of the fact that there's a sort of a deeper, more, you know, expanded reality that they're, they've kind of, we're like focusing machines, we humans, yeah. or, or all beings are, I think. And, yeah. and, uh, and but the, the focusing becomes so ingrained, you know, so habitual, uh, yeah. so conditioned that the, the 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 broad awareness, the unbounded awareness, is just kind of lost. Sure. Yeah. yeah. At least the, the the capacity is never lost, but the experience right, right. can be lost for yeah. a while. Yeah. Yeah. For lifetimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good thing we're, we we uh, are eternal. Good so, thing, uh, you know. <laughs> yesterday, I uh, I watched this video presentation about uh, the fact that they've now determined with the Hubble Space Telescope that the Andromeda galaxy is moving toward our galaxy and then in about eight and a half billion years the two galaxies will collide and, <laughs> and they sped the whole thing up and you could sort of watch the Andromeda coming in and then kind of circling around and colliding with our galaxy and then kind of going out again and then coming back in again and eventually just forming one big galaxy. I, cool. I just kind of love that stuff because yeah. it, it puts it in perspective, you know? Yeah, let, let's start planning a party where we'll all get together and watch. <laughs> yeah. And you can, you can imagine, you know, as that's taking place, all the lives and all the billions of inhabited, you know, yeah. planets spinning out their destinies thinking that this little thing that I'm experiencing now is it, you know, this is, right. this is, this is what's real. Whereas really from a broader perspective, there's something, yeah, there's a different perspective. Yeah. 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 If, if consciousness is eternal, then all of that is good play. You know, yeah. all of that is yeah. a, you know, there's a, there's a definition of illusion I came across recently that illusion is something real that simply appears to be something other than what it is. And so all of this illusion, including the illusion of galaxies colliding, you know, it, it ultimately is, it, it's some, it, there's reality there. And yet the appearance of it is the illusion, the, the idea that it, you know, somehow that something's lost or something's gained. Because, mm -hmm. the, you know, with all those people whose, who's, you know, little solar system gets all disrupted because another star comes into it and their lives are changed or their lives, you know, life on that planet is ended. Mm -hmm. It's like that's that's the illusion that that's somehow a problem, that that will, you know, that that, that will end consciousness, that that will end the, the play. Mm. So that's a great like definition. A, something, say it again, something real that appears to be something other than what it is. Is that the way yeah. you Yeah. Yeah. Like, like all the magic tricks, you know, that when you get right down to the, the nitty-gritty of illusion, you know, for doing illusion for a living, you know. A magician is using real smoke and real mirrors to make it look like something's happening that's not actually happening. Yeah, or the old snake and, and string analogy in Vedanta, you know. I mean, yeah. there's really a rope lying on the road. Yeah, uh, right. But, exactly. but, but you see it as a snake, and so you get all scared and, you know, right. heart right. rate speeds up and everything. But it's just a rope lying there. It's a real rope, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You probably wouldn't see a snake there if there wasn't a rope. You know? Yeah, so. and of course they use that analogy as a pointer to what we're all doing, what everyone does, which is mistake... Uh, you know what is really essentially Brahman or consciousness as being something you know that's not that's not that. Yeah, 
Yeah, anything anything that we leave out. You know, I I find it kind of ironic how in the current uh, Advaita scene, you know, the current non-duality scene, that there are people who uh, seem intent on on you know determining what is not part of Advaita. <laughs> and if yeah. you know, if if there's something that's not part of Advaita, if there's something that's not included in Advaita. Then it's not Advaita. I mean, how could that be Advaita? It's you know non-dual, only one. Mm-hmm. So, as soon as you have something that's not included, you're you're no longer actually speaking about non-duality. Yeah. Actually, the you know the founder of Advaita, well, the whole tradition of it really, they use the word Brahman, and Brahman is supposed to be not just the absolute, but the absolute and the relative In, contained within a larger wholeness. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Both. Both again, right. all all everything's included. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you use the word space a lot in in your talks, uh, in, with reference to consciousness, and um, that I don't know that kind of bothered me a little bit. Not not bothered, but it sort of thought, I kept thinking there must be a better way of phrasing it because space, uh, although you can attribute quality of spaciousness to consciousness because it seems. You know, there's that feeling of expansion and vastness and so on, and emptiness perhaps. Uh, but in reality, space itself is a relative thing. You know, it's considered to be one of the five elements in the Eastern perspective. And in, you know, in Einsteinian physics, space is something which can curve. And you know, if you move through it fast enough, then time will dilate and so on. So maybe you don't mean it literally. Maybe you're just kind of using that as an adjective to. Uh, uh, yeah, probably both. You know, because the you know space is a quality of of our being, and it's a and it's a very fundamental quality because it turns out that that's you know actually every everywhere you go there's space. You know, it, even if you can bend it or curve it or you know uh, experience it different ways, it's still always always present. And so it, I, I, I like I speak of awareness is actually a fundamental quality of our being. And often we, we just do that. We use the adjective, we use the quality, the, the particular aspect of something to as the name for it. You know? Yeah. So like somebody somebody who's a doctor, you know, that's a that's an aspect of their personhood. You know, that's an aspect of their of their individuality. But we sometimes refer to them as a doctor because right. that it's a it, it might be a fairly predominant aspect of their of their experience in life Mm -hmm. and so awareness is this is so fundamental to what we are that it's always present it's always happening and well always is maybe a little strong but almost always (laughs) always almost always present it's obviously present in every experience Mm -hmm. because without awareness there is no experience and and so you can say the same thing about space it's actually present in every experience Without space, there is no experience, and so it seems to me it's a little—it's a little bit more fundamental than some of the other qualities, like the other four elements, if you want to say. Well, it's actually it, considered to be the most fundamental or subtle of the of the of the five yeah, elements. Yeah. 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 So that's so it, it's tricky because sometimes, uh, like I, you know, in just in my languaging and my speaking, I use a word like that that's actually a quality of this mystery. To try to describe the whole, or use it as the label for the entire mystery. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that's, that's fair enough. I mean, you know, yeah. that's that's done traditionally. Also, they speak of Sat Chit Ananda, for instance. You know, right. qual- qualities of consciousness and bliss and existence. You know, attributing those to consciousness, or yes. to to um, to being. To being yeah. Existence. yeah. Using using that as a name for being. Yeah. And, and you know, the the real names that like you know, being is a good example, but the the probably the best names are the ones that no one can define. Right. You know, it's like being or presence or or source or that, you know, <laughs> it's like the, the more vague and, and uh, hard to pin down a word is, the better it is for describing that, that, which, you know, includes everything and beyond. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. <clears throat> and spaces, spaces, because it's so present everywhere, you know, because it's such a, such a fundamental quality, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, like touchstone, like a, a, it's like if you if you focus on it, if you bring awareness to the space, if you even just notice the space around your body, the space within your body, if there is a, a strong emotion or something really stirring things up, and you literally give it space, you know, or just notice that there is lots of space for that emotion. That you know, it doesn't matter if that emotion is is you know, bigger than the state of Arizona, there's still space for it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so by noticing the space, it, it, you know, brings you more in touch with that bigger truth. Mm. Because it's, and, and like I said, it's a handy one to use because it's not like you can ever forget to bring it with you or misplace it or run out of it or something like that. You know? mm. <laughs> like, like awareness, you know, you can, by, by noticing awareness, you can come get back in touch with something that's bigger than the particular experience you're having. Yeah. There's a, for some reason, your space thing reminded me of a story from the Upanishads where the teacher tells the student to go and get a banyan seed and he comes back with a banyan seed and he said, okay, now break it open. And what do you see inside? He said, I don't see anything. It's just empty. And mm. then, he, then the teacher says, well, that, that huge, mighty banyan tree came out of that emptiness. You know, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So ultimately, space is the source, or emptiness is the source of everything. Yeah. And on the flip side, that emptiness is fullness. I mean, physicists would tell us that in every cubic you know centimeter of empty space there's like incredible energy at a subtle yeah. level you know more yeah. than all the atomic bombs and you know everything else just immense right. energy inherent in, in every tiny bit of space yeah and there's this really really cool hip uh uh physicist out there named nasim haramine oh yeah and, and he's he's like uh figured out the structure of space and the structure of space means that within that little, you know, kind of tiny little cubic centimeter of space, there's infinite energy. But this is where it gets really weird. There's actually infinite space. Ah, interesting. That the structure of space is the structure of space is like a, you know, those uh, Russian dolls where you right, open right. it up as another doll. The structure of space is like that. That whenever you, whenever wherever you are in space, then you, you there's a there's a similar structure, smaller structure within that, mm. and then similar smaller structure within that and it and you know it goes on to infinity hmm. so not only does infinity extend this way out into you know out into space but infinity is actually here infinity yeah. goes this way also interesting yeah 
I pondering, love it. I like it. I, yeah, I, I love it too. Pondering that yeah. stuff is like a spiritual practice, you know. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. That and astronomy. I, it, in fact, anything. I mean, even I think of a. I, I, I think how could a doctor be an atheist? You know, a doctor who's yes. looking at this incredible, you know, g intelligence. You know, this, yes. how could they not believe? Not see it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and Gina's uh, been uh, listening to Bruce Lipton, and he was a he was a very he rejected religion, all that kind of stuff, and became a a, a, a scientist and stud, started studying the cell. And when he when he started realizing what's really going on in the cell, which is you know the usual idea is that the DNA controls the cell, he found out that's not that's not true at all. The, the DNA is just like a blueprint that's stored on the shelf for when you need to make a protein. That what controls the cell is the inner all the interactions happening on the membrane of the cell, hmm. and so he by when he got really into studying the cell, he started having this mystical perspective yeah. that that the intelligence was the whole field that these tiny little individual cells exist in, and the membrane was the like the 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 key element, not the not the DNA, not the nucleus. Hmm. That's a beautiful point, and it, it sort of touches back on several things we've talked about so far. And uh, you know, sometimes we speak of uh, existence or being or consciousness or whatever in a very kind of um, it, it doesn't have much life in it the way it's referred yeah. to, you know. But yeah. but if you but f what we're touching on now is that it's actually percolating with with intelligence, percolating with infinite, you know creativity and right know, it's right. it's this kind of that, know, that's uh, that's another uh, fundamental quality of it actually mm. is the aliveness yeah is yeah the, is the movement is the create creation within it the endless creation endless you know uh dynamic aliveness and that mm. and so that, that again everywhere you go in in your consciousness in the universe inside your body what you find is this incredible activity, movement, uh, aliveness, you know, and so that is, is a fundamental quality. Hmm. And actually, you know what you were saying a few minutes ago about um, when we were talking about the rope and the snake, how illusion is looking at something and, you know, mistaking it for some, something other than what it really is. Yes. Um, and, and if we kind of consider for a minute that, consciousness is omnipresent that everything is just this ocean of consciousness then what are we actually seeing when we see the world and all the things going on in it we're, we're yeah. actually seeing in a sort of a manifest form the aliveness of consciousness right and so we're no matter what you're seeing you're to some degree you're seeing an illusion you know if you're looking at a physical object you're, you're seeing a certain, it, it appears to be something other than what it is. What it is, is this alive consciousness appearing to be a, a chair or a table. Mm -hmm. if, you're, if you're even more like involved with your, with your mental experience, with, with your thoughts, then, you know, and, and yet so involved with them that you've in a sense forgotten that they're thoughts. You, you see them, you, you think that, they, that what you're imagining in your mind is actually there. You know, you're having a conversation in your mind with your boss and, and, it's, and you're getting all upset because, you're, you know, and, 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 you know you're, you're going through all these mental gymnastics and it's like for a moment you've forgotten that they're just thoughts. Mm. You think that they're, you know, and so you're, you're involved with them in, in a way that 
is in a sense lost in the illusion. You've lost track of the reality that it's just a thought. Yeah, taking them very seriously. Yeah, and we you know we do that. We take our thoughts, but you know, like that, that. I mean, I love how even in an argument, people will that, that will be like justification for their position. Like, well, that's what I think. <laughs> like, like somehow that makes it <laughs> you yeah. know infallible, accurate. That the the ultimate truth, because that's that's what I think. I heard Dick Cheney do that on an interview. You know, they were asking him why, why you know something like why we had to invade Iraq. You know, and and he said, well, that's you know, and he gave his reasons, and the person said, really? He said, yeah, well, that's what I think. <laughs> like, okay, end end of discussion. <laughs> it's funny you should mention Dick Cheney because just this morning I was re-listening to an interview by Bill Moyers with uh, a fellow named Jonathan Hade. H-A-I-D-T. Maybe I'll link to that interview from the Batcat page. But he was talking about how, you know, people get locked into political perspectives. Yes. And, uh, you know, and to the point where they demonize the other side because the the, the other perspective seems so polar opposite that it couldn't possibly have any value in it because theirs is so right. Right. Theirs is the righteous, true one, and the other one's evil. Right. And, and that's uh, and when you're in that narrow, contracted, identified way of viewing, it does seem like that that other stuff. I mean, clearly that stuff is illusion, but this this is real because <laughs> again, that's what I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, when I when I heard Dick Cheney say that, I was it was it was uh, it, it struck me, and then there was this kind of moment of humility and realizing how many times in my life have I said that? You know, right. how many times or or, or just had that or just assumed it you know assume that because i'm thinking something well that i must be right (laughs) (laughs) i quoted this just last week but there's a line from a dylan song yeah i'm right from my side you're right from your side and i'm right from mine yeah yeah maybe maybe all there is is rightness you know yeah and 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 that doesn't you know the, the 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 danger in that is to assume that therefore all truths are equal you know, I right. think all all truths are true, and some are much more true than others. Yeah. You know, it's like you know they were <laughs> they were they were right that if Iraq had been able to, they would have they would have had lots of weapons of mass destruction. You know, right. there was some truth in that that was, you know, that was within the realm of possibility. It was something that you would expect Saddam Hussein would be interested in. You know, and and some people even suggest that he was being misled by his own scientists. Into thinking that they were developing <laughs> weapons when they when they had no clue, and they just, you know, they just, uh, you know, said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we're we're working on that. We're getting yeah. there. Don't worry. We'll don't kill we'll us. have one soon." Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, you know, there, there's always some truth, and then, but then, you know, there can be a little, or there can be a lot. And so, to you know, in the media, when they present both sides, is a way of being balanced. Well, if this is a small truth and this is a big truth then, you know, presenting them as equal is not balanced, you know, right. that, 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 that argument like falls over because this one is much bigger. Even when you put them on the scale, it's going to go like this. Yeah, um, I mean, to take an absurd example, you could say, okay, well, Hitler was nice to his grandchildren or something, you know, so, well, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, so he, yeah, he, he deserved so, to continue killing off all the, right. <laughs> all the Jews. Right? No, that yeah. doesn't make sense. Those are unequal truths. Yeah, interesting. I mean, it's kind of funny we're talking about this because um, it's to me it shows that all this spiritual talk and spiritual practice and satsang and all that it it actually does have 
relevance in the the relative world in in politics in morality in you know social yeah. I- social issues and stuff like that and you know personally i think it it, it i mean certainly a, a, a person who's really gung ho about spirituality can become very fundamentalist but um, yeah. perhaps if it really ripens and matures it it sort of enables you to bring a um a kind of a softer gentler uh, approach to these issues, which is not to say, as you just said, that you're going to become totally wishy-washy and and not take a stand, right. uh, but you won't take it so adamantly. You right. Know? You you don't have to hold it so rigidly or or make the other person wrong or you know go to war about it. Yeah. It's, you know, um, first of all, that you know this this discriminating how true things are. Ideally, it's it's not a mental activity. It's more uh, an activity of of your heart, of your being. You know, it's it's a it's almost like a visceral response when we can tell whether something is true or not is very true or not very true. Mm-hmm. It's not really true or not true because again, all there is is truth. So even something that is, in a sense, total imaginary, total illusion, is still true in the sense that you can imagine. You know, but it's yeah. just not very true. It's like less less true than a lottery ticket. You know, less less likely than a lottery ticket, and so, you know, that's very very little truth. You know, and our being responds to it. Our our it's not our it's not our it's not by logicing it out. I always say to the mind, everything looks equally true. The mind is like a electron microscope. Whatever you put in it, it looks big. Whatever you look at, it looks true. Whatever you think about in that moment, it, that is your experience. So it seems just as real as what you were thinking about a moment before. Whether it's a fear or a desire or uh, a memory, you know, all of a sudden that's your reality. And the, the thing that measures how true it is is really more our heart, more our felt sense of being, and whether that gets contracted or expanded. So it's a, you know, it is possible to weigh these things like you said to bring the the this uh, spiritual reality into play in the world and really discriminate how true things are what's true for me is it true for me you know to eat that whole plate of cookies is it true for me to marry this woman is it true for me to move to hawaii and and live off the land you know it's like you can you can actually weigh all these relative truths in 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 your heart in your being and that, and and so you know, it turns out this that capacity, this capacity to not just be alive in the world, but to but to discriminate, to distinguish, to that that's another fundamental quality of consciousness. Yeah, you can't you can't have awareness without being able to distinguish differences. Or it's either a quality of consciousness, maybe, or it's a. A faculty which becomes more finely tuned and and reliable when consciousness is more clearly reflected in the in the physiology. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, it's a fundamental. You know, all these qualities of consciousness are like fundamental capacities of consciousness. Yeah. You know, it's like able to be aware. It's able to be infinite in space in the terms of space. Mm-hmm. It's able to be, like you said, exquisitely dis- discriminating. And, and yet, uh, like I say, I always point out that it's not the mind that has right. that. It, the mind discriminates in another way. The mind discriminates the content of experience. Hmm. Like the mind is what tells you, you know, has learned when something's red and when something's blue. The mind knows those kind of differences. 
but this this is a, like you said a more subtle capacity to to weigh difference to to engage with this world by by distinguishing what's real what's true you know? and when when you encounter a big truth you know i was saying you can use it to decide whether you eat a plate of cookies or not right but when you encounter a big truth of course your sense of being goes way out there you know your sense of being gets to the size of the truth that you're experiencing so it's also discriminating when you can no longer you know you can no longer find a sense of me because the sense of being is so all inclusive so so vast that's that's that same discriminating capacity yeah but then at the same time you know there has to be the capacity to function in that vastness. Yes, yes. One, one time many years ago, it was like 1971, I was giving a satsang or a, a, a presentation to a group of TM practitioners, and we, we played the film um, Powers of Ten. I don't know if you ever saw yes, that. Yes, yes, I love that? that film. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> and it stretched me so much that by the end of it, I couldn't speak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I had to, sp I had to speak, you know, because I was right. supposed to be talking to these people. So for like for about fifteen minutes, all I could, the best I could do is say a word or two, and then just kind of like, you know, man, and then I kind of zoom out again, and then, <laughs> and then focus in a bit, say another couple of words, you know, because obviously there wasn't somehow very developed capacity at that point to be sort of unbounded and focused at the same time yeah. or, or again the flexibility just to let go of this and come yeah back. yeah it was probably like so cool to be out here it's like yeah i couldn't not... come back yeah <laughs> it's like give and me that... some thorazine <laughs> <laughs> and that and i think that happens a lot you know that you know and 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 somewhat you know spiritual people kind of idealize that like yeah. they hear about how ramana sat there in the in the little uh, hole in the ground and had rats chewing on his legs and, right. and somehow Didn't that's even know it right that's cool yeah, yeah. That, that's <laughs> like wow you know that's, and that becomes the ideal and of course if you if you haven't experienced that it's kind of it's kind of uh premature to talk about well you know it doesn't matter and and is it, and the thing that really matters is flexibility you know when you're stuck here yes it it's it, it's absolutely important to be able to do that to be able to let a movie, you know, a movie, uh, uh, a sunset, some, anything, or even for no reason, to be able to go like that. But you know, if you then get stuck there, then you're right. You're, you're you know, you are. I think in this culture, it might not be. Uh, you know, there might be a lot of cases of people who do end up in just parked in a mental hospital because they got out here and they said, "Well, I'm not going back. Why should yeah. I go back? I'm staying." You know, there, there was there was some something about that experience that they that they just never again came back into into functional yeah into a functional orientation it's interesting i want to come back to this point about the ability to disc discriminate and discern truth but it, it so happens that somebody sent in a question that they wanted me to ask you um, sure. which which uh, hits on the point we're talking about just now and that is why don't any of the non-dual people have regular jobs why are they all just traveling around and talking about the self? Can one lead a normal life if one is really dissolved? Not just speaking of awakening uh, here, but uh, you know, not, not not just speaking of awakening here, but true end of the line enlightenment. You know, could you be a brain surgeon or a 747 pilot and you know and yet be truly enlightened, or does it kind of render you incapable of doing anything so so gross and mm. and practical? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, 
I think it's totally within the realm of possibility, and and I'm sure if you if you like Papaji himself, he he you know until until he was in a sense at, at retirement age, he worked he worked as an engineer. He traveled all over, you know, had a normal job. Um, I don't think there's any contradiction, and and I would also add from my own experience that traveling around giving satsang turns out to be incredibly ordinary in that you still have to schlep yourself to the airport, be there on time, get, you know, find the right gate, get on the plane, you know, uh, organize it, send out the email announcements, you know, either, either you're doing that or someone's doing it for you, in which case, if someone's doing it for you, you still have this kind of very ordinary experience of being the boss and you have to deal with all of their stuff. And when they're, you know, they call in sick or they, uh, you know, do something that's not quite the way you wanted them to do it, you know, it, it, it doesn't, no, no matter what you uh, are, you know, in terms of your, the specifics of what you do, you, you are still doing, you are still, in a sense, m- managing this, this ordinary world, unless, again, you're, you're, you are just sitting in a cave, in which yeah. case, yeah, in which case that, then, then <laughs> you know, and, and, and to, to me, it, it's, again, it's, it's the flexibility. You know, the ideal is not one or the other. The ideal is is to discover your capacity for all of that. Yeah, I think it's a matter of dharma too, to some extent. You know, I mean, yes. Ramana Maharshi perhaps it just wasn't his dharma to go out and run a business. He wasn't that kind of guy. That wasn't his manifestation. That you know, it wasn't. But, his... but see, that's a great example because after that time when he sat in the cave and the rats chewed on his legs. Then, you know, finally some people discovered him and dragged him out of there and started feeding him and, you know, shooing the rats away. And, uh, and then later, this is much later in his life, he, you know, there was this big ashram. And he, was, uh, he got up every morning at 3 a.m. And, and, you know, made the breakfast. Or 4 a.m. I think it was about 4 a.m. according to the story I read. But, um, and, and I've also heard that he was an absolute tyrant in the kitchen, that, that he, you know, that you did it the right way or you got, you know, you got it from Ramana. <laughs> um, he, he was actively involved in the building program. That was one of his little pet projects. He was always, you know, that there was this guy, Anamalai Swami, who was in charge. And Ramana, every day, Ramana would check in with Anamalai Swami and see what they were doing and make suggestions or give him instructions. And so... You know, he he had he experienced this place where it didn't matter if rats chewed on his legs, and, and then he also uh, became a, a you know functional and and you know it's not like he was uh, he ran the ashram totally himself, but he but he was involved with it. He didn't he didn't leave it all to the you know to let the the yeah. the forces of of cosmic consciousness determine everything. Yeah, good point. And, uh, you know, I've had a fair amount of experience with Marshi Mahesh Yogi and Amaji both. And, you know, they're uh-huh. both examples of, you know, highly enlightened beings who are, you know, just like working like dogs, you know, to, to yeah. kind of <laughs> man- manage all kinds of stuff. Yes, you know? yes. When it gets that big, you know, you, you know, it, it, I, I, uh, I was sitting around, this was, you know, years later after I was sitting around talking with Adya one time, you know, and, and I suddenly realized, like, I was really curious, like, What's it like to have, you know, 400, 500 people come to an event and, and have this big staff of 10 or 12 people? You know, I was just kind of curious about that. You know, like, how, how, do you, how is that for you? And, and then I, what I noticed is that he, I could tell he was feeling really nostalgic 
for the good old days. For the good old days, he was like asking me all these questions about, so you guys just do it all yourself, don't you? And I was like, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, pretty much we do it all. He was like, oh, yeah, that was great when I could do that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it's like, and and I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have 10 people do everything for me? And he was thinking, wouldn't it be great not to have anybody doing anything for me? (laughs) (laughs) Grass is always greener. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to get back to this point about... um, Using you know a lot, having the capacity to discriminate with the heart and yeah. de- determine the truth and all. There's this uh, there's this uh, saying in Sanskrit, "Ritambara pragya," which means that level of intellect which knows only truth. And mm. Shankara wrote a book you know called "The Crest Jewel of Discrimination." Yeah. Um, so this word discrimination and being able to discern truth from non-truth at a very subtle level is kind of real central to spiritual. Tradition, yeah. um, and you know, in, in in that case of the phrase I just used, it's the word intellect is used. But I think that the at the level we're talking about, there's really no distinction much between intellect and heart. We're talking about a, a deep intuitive faculty. Right, and and you know, I use the word heart just because it it can tend to bring people into a more, uh, you know, more complete experience of their being than just the intellect. And yeah. and so it's more like the the whole being's intellect. The whole be the, they call it heart wisdom in in mm-hmm. some traditions, and and it is the you know energetically the center that responds most subtly, most directly to these to either this sense of expansion, softening, opening, or this sense of contraction, tightening, rigidity, and and you know that's that's the that's the discrimination right there, the movement, and it. It, um, it, 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 you know, it's. I always say it's working perfectly. It's not something that anybody needs to get better at. Your whole life, your your being has been expa- either expanding or contracting appropriately to the moment. And, and when someone, when someone lays a really small truth, when someone lays a you know a trip on you, and it's and it's not very true, the right way for you to feel in that instant, in that moment, is to contract. That's, you know, it'd be, I always say it's like the, the little kids game where they say you're getting warmer or you're getting colder. Mm-hmm. If you were playing that with someone and no matter what, they said, oh, you're getting warmer. It's like after a while, you'd want to, you'd want to slap them. You know, you'd want to like <laughs> say, no, wait a minute. I can't, how can I, how can I play this game if you just always say I'm getting warmer? Yeah, I would have found it by now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so you need that capacity you need you need to notice to uh, to trust to acknowledge the sense of contraction when something is is narrowing or limiting or distorting the truth and and just you can also obviously trust it when when your heart when your being when your sense of being opens and softens yeah i i totally agree with all that except the part about not being able to get better at it I mean, you know, I've made some pretty lousy judgments in my life, and over the course of, you know, the decades, I feel like my capacity to, you know, be kind of a sensitive to what's right and what's inappropriate has refined tremendously. And, you and know... When I, when I say you can't get better, at it, I'm talking about the raw, the raw re- response of your being, mm-hmm. because that's always been there. It's just that... For much of possibly much of your life, you either you didn't pay attention to it, or, or even if you even if you were experiencing it, there's this funny thing we do, which we learn to do. We were taught to do it, but most of us, when we get contracted, we our response to it is to try to contract our way out of that contraction. 
most of us like you know we 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 that, that the contraction itself is does feel limiting you know it does feel constrictive and so we we move into a position of judging whatever was just happening or we reject it or we try to find something or we you know grasp out for something different you know and we don't actually just experience that contraction and just you know like you were saying subtly discriminate oh right this is just not very true for me without any any uh need to get away from the contraction it's it's ironic how you know trying not to be contracted contracts you and allowing contraction to be here expands you and then by the way the reverse is true too trying to get expanded contracts you <laughs> and and see what that points to right there you know again i'm talking about this visceral response anyone who's ever tried to get expanded has gotten more and more contracted right mm-hmm. and so what that's pointing to is what the 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 that being expanded is not actually better it's just different and I would I would take that so far to say that, you know, you are more subtle, you are discriminating more subtly, but that that's not actually better. It's just different. It's just you're experiencing it in a different place. Better is one of these. Um, it's it's one of those uh, experiences that's purely conceptual. There there isn't really anything called. I, I always say that you know if there really was a thing called better, something called better, we'd all just go to the store and buy it. You know, we'd all just go get a big tub of better and rub it all over our bodies, and we'd feel better, <laughs> right? It's it's purely conceptual. You know, there's there's nothing that it actually nothing that it actually points to. Yeah, that that kind of <laughs> it's it's a useful concept. Yeah, you can but, still hold it. But when you say that, though, it, I I, th- I say okay. Well, I can get that as long as I'm looking at it from the sort of the broad perspective that we were yes. talking about. You know, yes. in the beginning, creators of galaxies. Right. Uh, you know, <laughs> but um, you know, is it, be- is it is there a, is there a qualitative difference from an experiential standpoint between you know the enlightened sage and the psychotic in a mental hospital? I think the enlightened sage is having a, a, a kind of a smoother ride, you know, a, a more <laughs> enjoyable uh, state of being than right. someone whose mind is completely confused and psychotic and crazy. Yeah. So, you know, you, and maybe so, and, you can use that, the word better there. Absolutely. And like I said, even though it's purely conceptual, it's still, it's still again, it's still true. It still yeah. has its usefulness, and that's a good example, you know, especially it, in, in orienting. Why not? Why not use this concept of better? You know, why not move towards things that are better? But, like you said, either through, you know, when you step out and you realize, hey, you know, that 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 psychotic, identified experience is not actually harming the consciousness. It hasn't taken away that per- that that being's capacity, that sort of individual expression of being's capacity, to, to transcend all that stuff. And sometimes, you know, surprisingly, it even happens in those most psychotic moments that people have awakenings. And also, you know, the this not only can you get that perspective from there, but you also can get that perspective from just from having been through a lot of life experiences, big yeah. ones, small ones. That after a while, you start to you start to hold this whole whole idea better. You know, you just hold that very lightly because you realize. Who who can say what's what's better? You know, that's true. But, 
You know, you're, I mean, I have a friend who got sent to jail for five years, and you know, I wouldn't trade places with him, but it's yeah. probably precisely what he needs for his, right. it could his evolution, a, his growth. It could be profound, you know, it, yeah. it, along with all of the horrors of that, you know, all of the the terrible aspects of it. But again, terrible. See, ho better and worse are both conceptual. <laughs> so. Yeah. So even those things that are worse might be, like you said, just what he needs, like a, a really good, you know, Zen stick on the side of the head <laughs> to, yeah. to, sh to really shake him loose in a way that you, you or I, you know, can only imagine because yeah. we have had that experience. Well, like you say, I mean, nothing can harm consciousness. I mean, an asteroid yeah. could crash into the planet and we'd all be dead in five minutes or whatever. Yeah. But uh, consciousness isn't perturbed by that. It just, it's, yeah. unsha it's unshakable. Um, right. And uh, yeah, and and like I said, so you know, it, you can still take on this small truth of better and use it to orient. And like I said, if if you do that though, you you start discovering that you know you you make a million dollars and you discover well, yeah, it's different. You know, it's not better. I, years ago, I had a, a a friend. You know, you know how a, a um, heroin dealer, a drug dealer, will give you the first uh, couple doses for free. Right, because they figured then they have a customer for life, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good business practice. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so this friend of mine who he, his job he reviews high-end stereo equipment, mm -hmm. right? And so a couple many years ago he he gave me a pair of twenty-five hundred dollars speakers. Mm. He just said, "Here, uh, these are in my garage. You can have them," you know. And I brought them home, and it started me on this whole journey because once I had $2,500 speakers, I needed a better amplifier. <laughs> and, that, and then it turns out that it really matters what the, the wires are that you hook your speaker up to your amplifier. Yeah, you have to have these big fat ones with gold yeah. and stuff. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I went on this whole journey searching for better sound, right? Mm -hmm. And then at a certain point, I started to notice that no, no matter what I did, and literally it gets like ridiculous, no matter what you do, even rearrange the furniture in the room or what you ate be, you know, for lunch before you sit down to listen. Everything, even very, very subtle energies, you know, affect how your system sounds. Mm. And so I found that you know, I was making, buying things, trading things in. You know, I, I, I used eBay a lot to, to sell stuff so I could buy other stuff. <laughs> and I started to realize no matter what I did, all it did is it gave me different sounds. You know, I could no longer. I could no longer actually tell you what better sound is, hmm. because well, you it was sort just, of reach the we reach the fringes of of yeah quality. Yeah. And my my sound was very good. You know, I mean, it was it, it, still using that concept. You know, it was. I had gotten to a point where now all I was doing was making these like little, you know, un unremarkable changes. Yeah. And, yeah, and when I when I realized that I got I just got bored with it. It's like, you know, what what, you know, if I want to listen to music, I listen to music, but I don't. This idea of better sound, I, it's like I wore it out. I wore out that concept, not by transcending it, but by wearing it out in, in the in the in the literal sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, does it really matter to Mark Zuckerberg that he lost a few billion dollars in the last couple of weeks? You know. Yeah. Maybe. He's got thirty something billion. There's a few few billion here or there. You know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> jump it, jump it, change. Yeah, and of course, the, you know, saying that the truth has all these different sizes, it's always relative. Hmm. You know, uh, that I, brings I, up an interesting point, which is that you know, if you're a pauper, you know, then any slight loss and gain is a big deal. Yeah. You know, if you're a multimillionaire, 
then you can lose and gain large amounts, and it just doesn't shake you that much. Right. So unless, unless you're unless you're like focused, still like so identified with it. Yeah. And, uh, years ago, I was a, a long time ago. I was a massage therapist, and I mm -hmm. lucked into this. All these, I, uh, my clients were some of the wealthiest people in Boston, and of course, they told their friends. So it was pretty soon I had a lot of very extremely wealthy, hundreds of millions of dollars type wealthy clients in Boston. And what amazed me was, as I got to know them, you know, because they were, they, were, they, they were wealthy enough, they were weekly clients, you know. <laughs> and as I got to know them, I discovered that they worried about money more than I did. Mm -hmm. They thought yeah. about it more. They were, you know, and so, you know, there's this, this other dynamic at play, which is how identified are you with it? How do, are you able to step outside of that truth? Because yeah. money by itself is a very small truth. It, you know, it, it's real, it exists, it happens, but does it really make that much difference? You know, how real is it in terms of how happy you are, how fulfilled you are, how exciting your life is? Doesn't 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 seem to really have much impact on the, on that. So yeah, it turns out to be a small truth. <laughs> so, um, what happened to you? I mean, you were. It says you know in your bio that you were. A, ardent seeker for many years and then mm -hmm. you you met Neelam and she told you to give up seeking and and then you you had this profound awakening in in India can we talk yeah. about all that a little bit sure for sure I, yeah. I, I eventually I got so tired of telling that this story that I I just put it on my website so I wouldn't have to tell it again but I'll, I'll make an <laughs> exception in your case well, I, don't, you. I, I just see the like the the short paragraph version of it here I don't know we, yeah. want, we want the more <laughs> elaborated version yeah so how how big a time frame you want? As much as you feel like telling. Um, yeah. yeah. So maybe so for the time you got over potty training from then on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wait, that's the best part. You leave me out. <laughs> All those accidents, man, they were great. <laughs> uh, so, you know. I'll address first that, that statement, I was a lifelong spiritual seeker. It, it, mm -hmm. seemed, it does seem like it was something I was engaged with. Like I, 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 years later, I kind of reflected on this. You know, when, when you're a kid and your kids want to be firemen or baseball players or stuff like that. I, want, I wanted to be a minister. Wow. That's what I wanted to be. My mom, I actually had my mom, my mom took me to talk to our minister about it. And, um, and he, he actually gave me great advice. He, he said, well, if you want to be a minister, then you sh for the next, you know, until, until you're an adult, you should just, uh, if possible, be as curious as possible about everything. Wow, that's a very um, open-minded minister. Some of, them, yeah. some of them say, don't think too much, and it's the devil. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, this guy, this guy told me, go out there and learn everything you can. Mm. Of course, he was talking to a fifth grader, so it was like yeah. the perfect advice, you know. <laughs> and so that was my motto for a long time: was to be curious. Um, and and then uh, the the actual like um, directly spiritual focus began when I was about fifteen, mm -hmm. and I and I stumbled on a book by Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. And you know, back then that was that he was one of the the few things out there, you know, in, in the in the West. And so I. Stumbled on this book. I, I read everything, and I you know I read everything I could by him. I was very involved with all this stuff as a teenager, going to meditation groups and studying, you know, practicing Tai Chi. And um, I, I still remember an inter interaction with a uh, just an acquaintance. Not it wasn't somebody I knew that well, but an acquaintance in high school where 
um, he, he walked into one of the classrooms that I was in. I, it was just the two of us in the classroom. And he, and he said, so how are you? And, and speaking very genuinely, very sincerely from my experience in that moment, I said, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, uh, it was great. He literally ran out of the room screaming. <laughs> really? He said, hey, wow. you're so weird. I can't hear you. He ran out of the room. <laughs> Did you go so, through a drug phase? <laughs> yeah, we're talking no, about late 60s here. Yeah, you know, I, the only thing I ever used was a little marijuana, and even that I didn't do much. I think I was... I don't think I, I, I just don't think my system needed it, you know. Yeah. In fact, in fact, I, another, another story from high school when I ran into a, an acquaintance a few years later and we were talking about high school and, and, uh, and, you know, about all the drugs that people were using at that time. And, and I said, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, uh, I was probably only stoned at high school and this was just marijuana, you know, maybe once, maybe twice. And, and he said, really? <laughs> said, Ma, I, I thought you were, like, tripping on LSD all the time. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so, like I said, maybe I didn't need it. <laughs> so, anyway, so that, that was, I was precocious in that way. I was very involved in all this stuff, very interested in it. But I think there was a, another, you know, just another aspect of my being, another, another something else that needed to be experienced. And so it's like I, I needed to to you know, make it in the material world. I needed to find out what, and so I needed to have a career. I needed to get married. And so I did that. I, and I, I ended up marrying this woman and we, you know, first it was massage and then it was moving into, uh, I was going to become an, a naturopathic physician. And I was very wrapped up in things. And, and so that all the spiritual stuff kind of went on the back burner, became like a hobby. I had, you know, at one point we had a, in our massage office, we had a flotation tank. And I would, and at night I would go in there for four hours, five hours at a time, you know. Mm. All, but all that stuff was, like I said, just sort of like, you know, this sort of like stuff I, I was just interested in. And then, but my real life was about trying to make my marriage work, trying to make my career thing work, you know. And uh, and that was that's kind of the, the was the trajectory of my life until partway through the first year of naturopathic medical school, when and, and by the way, they don't, they don't tell you this in the medical school brochures, but over half of all marriages don't survive medical school. Mm. And so halfway through the first year of medical school, my, my wife suddenly announced that she had fallen in love with another man. Mm. And that, that it was sort of like that whole illusion, that whole dream, like suddenly wasn't there anymore. It, like it, it, and, and in the process of trying to like sort through that you know what what happened was that all of a sudden you know up to that point I could kind of keep a lid on all the all the stuff inside of me you know all the feelings and when that happened I suddenly the feeling suddenly got turned up you know the volume got turned up to 10 on on the on the volume scale of feelings and 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 what I realized was that I had all these like equal and opposite feelings so, you know, the fact that she was leaving me was both the scariest thing I could imagine. It created all this fear, and at the same time, I was really excited. And the problem was that both of those feelings were so strong. You know, I, I would have moments of terror and moments of, of like, uncontrollable excitement. 
I was totally devastated. I was totally sad, you know, uh, you know, destroyed, you know, devastated by this, by this loss. And at the same time, uh, there was this huge sense of relief. And they were both huge, you know, huge sense of relief, huge sense of devastation. I was like spinning like, you know, every which way. And, and around that time, I heard about this thing called the Sedona Method. Uh-huh. And the Sedona Method, at least at first, it's all about uh, uh, releasing and or just allowing feelings. And it's like, wow, that sounds perfect. You know, this sounds like just what I need. So I, I sent away for the, it was at that time you could take a home course on video. And I sat down and went through this whole Sedona Method course, letting go of emotions. There's, there's this one point in the course where they teach, first they teach you, you know, let go of all the negative emotions, right? And then they, and then they sort of interject this new thing where they say, and what happens then is you start having more positive emotions, feelings of peace and and courage and acceptance and things like that and they and they suggest that then you let those go is that more easily said than done it's 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 surprising when you just kind of do it you know like i I took it was a week it was a week between semesters in medical school you know and so i had this whole week i just like immersed myself in this process Mm -hmm. watching the videos and and i would you know like like after, after that little section about letting go of positive feelings, I actually went for a walk. And as I'm walking around our neighborhood, I'm, you know, letting go of feelings, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And then, you know, I start having these positive feelings. I said, okay. And I started letting those go, letting those go, letting those go. And I got to this moment, you know, where it was incredibly quiet. Hmm. You know, there just wasn't any, there was like the stillness was uh, remarkable. And and not only that, but then suddenly I could really hear the birds and really see the colors. Everything like was like suddenly much more vibrant and alive than, than I was used to. You know? And it was so remarkable. That experience was so strong that I, I literally turned around, walked home, and picked up the phone and called Hale Dwoskin, who who runs the Sedona Method, and said, you know, I see that there's this advanced retreat coming up. And I said, I'm a, I'm a total beginner. I'm just halfway through the beginning course. Can I come to the advanced retreat? And he, and he said, yeah, sure, come on. You know? So, I, so uh, I took a week off. from. I mean, it was in the middle of the semester. You know, the next semester, I just didn't go to class for a week. And, uh, and went up to Sedona for this advanced Sedona method retreat. And what I didn't realize when I signed up for it, you know, to me, at that moment, the Sedona method was mostly like sort of like this really cool stress reliever, you know, this really great way to handle my emotions, you know. And what I didn't realize was that Lester Levinson, who developed the Sedona method, actually developed it as a as a tool for awakening. Yeah, that's what that was the real intention of it, and. Um, and it turns out that at this particular retreat, which was going to be led by Hale and also by Pamela Wilson, who you, you've interviewed, um, that it was all these old-time Sedona method people who had been, you know, desperately seeking, trying to awaken, <laughs> or some of them for, you know, decades, <laughs> were all gathering together because the word, word was out that Pamela had had this big awakening. And so they were all gathering together to see, you know, to, to check out one of their 
one of their gang who had made it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, so I come into this room with 40 other people who are, are all desperate to awaken. Right? <laughs> you know, that's, that's their remaining suffering because they've let go of everything else, but they're still like, desperately wanting to awaken. And then there's Pamela, and she is like shining in a way that I'd never experienced. She's just, just you know, she's in that, especially in that first flush after yeah. a big awakening. It's a lot of fun to be around, you know. And yeah. so she was just incredibly uh, a beautiful presence. And so as she, the, she still does, by the way, but these days yeah. she's, she's, she's working some stuff out still, you know, that's been actually quite challenging, but. You know that she does that doesn't detract from her beautiful presence in the least. Yeah, yeah. I've I've stayed in touch with her through these yeah. years. We, she and I during that time frame, she and I became good friends. Mm-hmm. But um, so uh, here I am, and and at one point Hale even like gives this this talk about the 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 different uh, the different desires or wants and how you know it's kind of like because see, eventually when you after you let go of feelings you start letting go of desires. Because that's like letting go at an even bigger, in deeper level, you know. And then he and he gave this whole chart of desires, and turns out the 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 final desire is the desire to awaken, mm-hmm. and that eventually that has to be let go of also. That has to fall away also. And, and so so anyways, that's the whole milieu. And I'm I'm kind of looking around the room and saying I, I want to be like Pamela, but I don't want to end up like all these other people. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be like like somehow had this whole new way of suffering, you know. Right. And so uh so one night I'm I'm by myself in my room and late late at night and and I'm kind of, you know, like weighing this dilemma like, you know, and and then I remembered what Hale said about, you know, that in the end you just let go of the desire to awaken itself. And I thought I had this like great idea. Like, oh, I got it. I'm just going to let go of the desire to awaken first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, I'll, I'll just skip all those steps. You know, <laughs> I'll go, I won't, I'll be, it's like, why not go for the golden ring the first, on your first time out, you know? <laughs> and so, um, but I'm lying there, and then this little, but this little doubt kind of comes in, like, oh, I don't know if you can do that. You know, is that kosher? Is that, like, allowed? You know? <laughs> and so uh, I thought, well, maybe I'll ask Hale about it in the morning. You know, and then, and then I and then I remember that when you ask Hale uh, a question like that, mostly what he does is he just has you release until you get the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he has you do the Sedona method until you get your your answer. And so I said, well, I guess I don't have to. You know, I can do that. I don't have to wait for Hale in the morning. And so in some, in some, it's like on some. I just had this, you know, sense. Okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go in and hold that question. You know, really hold the question: Is can I just bypass all of this, you know, struggle to awaken and just, and just go there directly? And I got really quiet, and and the answer came. And it was like totally unexpected answer. It came from some deep place within my being that knew this, not just wasn't just intellectual, it was like a deep knowing, a deep truth. And the answer was, there's nothing you can do about it. It's not out of you. And at the same moment, I really, really got that. I also really, really got that I already did want it more than anything else. Mm-hmm. 
you know, that I was kind of like, I was playing a game with myself saying, I'm not going to end up like those other people. No, I, that's where I was. I was, that's. You were like that, those other people already. I, I was like, I'd probably been like that my whole life, but seeing Kamala and having it be that real, in a sense, had reignited that desire inside of me. And so right at the same moment, I realized that I wanted it more than life itself. I also had realized in a very deep level that there was absolutely nothing I could do about it. Hmm. And the combination of those two things, it just broke me open. I just, I, I literally was not just crying, I was like wailing, just in my room, just like this whole thing was just tearing me apart. It's like, I said it was like somebody was doing open surgery, uh, you know, open heart surgery without anesthesia. And it was just it was just this hugely devastating experience, and yet I couldn't like undo it. I couldn't stop it. At that point, it was already it was already the way it was. And something in me had just become very humble, very uh, very tender, you know, very soft. Um, it turns out, you know, at that on that very same week that the Sedona method thing was happening. There was also, Pamela had actually kind of arranged this. It also turns out that Neelam was in Sedona giving satsang every night. And I, I didn't, I'd never even heard the word satsang. Right. Never heard of Ramana Maharshi. I never, you know, all this stuff. And so, but everybody in the group, after we did the Sedona method all day, everybody would pile into cars and drive into town and go to satsang with Neelam. So <laughs> I got in the car and went to satsang with Neelam. And I got there, and that, whatever it was I saw in Pamela, you know, it was there, maybe even more so in Neela. She had, you know, she had been doing her thing for a while, and she was, she just was, you know, it was just, it's like I couldn't, it's like, it's like a, when you get hold of something that you can't get a hold of, but you also can't let it go. And so, um, as a, you know, after, after seeing Neela, I, I, I actually came back another weekend. A few weeks later, she came back to Sedona and did a weekend uh, retreat. And I did that. And part part way through that weekend, the only way I can describe it is like she moved into my heart. It's like she just, it was just like, I just, and, and suddenly I knew, even though it made no sense, had, you know, like was, it didn't, I, 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 the last place on, on earth I ever wanted to go was India. And yet that's where Neelam was going. And I suddenly knew that wherever Neelam was going, I was going. So all of a sudden I was going to India. And I, you know, it's like, wait a minute, I'm a medical student. <laughs> I'm like running up all these big student loans trying to become a doctor. And no, I'm going to India. <laughs> and so uh, I always talk say this about, talk, about, uh, talk about deciding something with the heart, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was a, I, I say it was like a choiceless choice. Mm -hmm. I made the choice, but I had no choice. You know? And 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 by the way, this part, none, none of this part really, it, you know, is not. It's not like a formula. Nothing about this is a formula. Everybody, no, no, everybody shouldn't just pack up and go yeah. to India. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I did. I, 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 you know, by this point, my wife and I were really splitting, and I had kind of argued with her so that I could stay in the house we had just bought. So I went back to her and said, well, if you'll take the house back, oh, take over the house again, pay the mortgage, you can have all the equity. So basically, I gave her all the equity in our house. I dropped out of medical school and packed up to go to India with Neelan. 
the last place on earth I ever wanted to go. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, at, at, there's, there's a couple more points along the way. Like there was one point where um, we were in a satsang in London, actually on the way to India, and Neelam said something, and it was another one of those kind of deep knowings. And it was like the complementary truth to the knowing that there was nothing I could do about it. And it was this knowing that there was nothing I had to do about it. That there was not, that there was, that this whole project of doing something about it was not, like, it was like the wrong question. And so that, that was this huge sense of relief. Like, oh, right, I don't have to, I can let go of this whole project of becoming becoming either becoming a better person or which had become becoming awakened you know and and so that all fell fell away and as I, as i that was kind of like the thing hale was actually talking about where that desire to awaken fell away in that moment and and so from that moment on i just kept getting happier and happier think you know i, I ran the sound system for neelam and one time in the middle of satsang it just completely stopped working and i just got really happy <laughs> I mean, I kept trying to fix it, right, right, and and I couldn't fix it, and and that just made me really happy, or I just felt really happy, happier every moment. There's a book out called Happy for No Reason. Yeah, yeah, uh, that was that was what it was like. Yeah, a friend of mine, Ghost, wrote it. Oh yeah, huh? That's that's sweet. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so uh, to just to finish the story, I I, I traveled with Neelam to India. Ended up falling in love with India, um, and we and we went to Rishikesh, and we spent all, all our days in satsang and singing bhajans at night, and you know, uh, right the the ashram we were at is right was right at the, the junction of the the Gold River and the Ganga. Mm-hmm. You know, the, um, uh, can't, I can't think now of the name <laughs> the name everybody uses for. Um, uh, the, con- the confluence or the sangha. Ganges, Ganges. That's oh, the word yeah, I, the Ganges, yeah. right? Yeah, right. So uh, you know, we were right on the banks of the Ganges River, right at this section of these huge rapids. Mm-hmm. And every night, after everybody else pretty much had gone to bed, I would I would go down and I would sit, like, you know, five feet away from these gigantic white water waves, mm-hmm. and I just sat there. And this went on for several nights. And then one night, I was sitting there. Leaning, leaning against a rock, just taking in the, the sound of the presence of the river. And I, I suddenly noticed that the rock was inside of me. It no longer, it no longer was outside of me. It was now as much, as much a part of me as my, as my shoulders, as my, as my legs. You know, it just, it just, and it wasn't, again, it wasn't intellectual. It was just directly experiencing the rock inside of me as me. And then this was kind of like logical, but it was also experiential in that if that that rock was inside of me, what about this whole big field of boulders right here along the river? And, oh, yeah, those are inside of me also. And then if it was this field of boulders, what about the field of boulders on the other side of the river? Oh, right, suddenly that was not intellectually, but experientially was me. And of course that meant if it was both sides of the river, suddenly the river is this, this, this these white water rapids were it just, it was like so natural, so obvious that those were inside of me, that that was me. And then, and then it kind of like, it suddenly included the entire river. 
which meant the entire continent of India. Hmm. And it just kept going like that, you know, the entire planet, the entire solar system, the, the, everything. It was, it was totally, obviously me inside of this thing called me and, and not at all intellectual, totally experiential. And then this weird thing happened where it... So it just expanded out eventually to the stars and the whole, yes, every, whole, whole universe. Way beyond what I, what I could conceptualize. Right. I was actually directly experiencing it inside of me. Mm-hmm. Inside of now this huge me, but right. <laughs> it's still inside of me. And, and then it did this weird thing where it, it like popped so, so that it was not just all space you know, that was inside of me, but it popped in time. And suddenly it was like really obvious that that's, that's what I'd been all along, that, you know, forever, you know. And, and suddenly I, I started laughing, like, like literally rolling around in the gravel on the side of the river, just laughing my head off because it was suddenly so funny to me that I ever, ever thought I had a problem that I had ever like believed that I was really suffering or that there that I had you know that I'd ever thought I was anything else and, and uh, that that went on for like half an hour I just laughed my head off for half an hour um, it took took me I think like maybe an hour to walk the hundred yards back up to the ashram <laughs> because I I this was I, I, I think I stopped and hugged some of the bigger rocks and I was like just, <laughs> just full of this this sense of presence, this sense of completeness. Um, from that, from that day, um, you know, it, it just started happening where people would would ask me, come come to me to ask lots of questions. Like people would catch me be, before, or after one of Neelam satsangs, they would drag me aside and like just want me to, you know, to explore with them. Um, had you to the, had you told the group that you had had this awakening, or did they somehow just sense that you, you know, were somebody you know, I, that could give them a decent answer if they asked a question? <laughs> um, I, I think the word had gotten out because I did yeah, tell people. Sure. I didn't I didn't hide it from anybody. Um, and uh, and so um, you know that was happening, and it happened even when I wasn't around you. And so people just you know it was just everywhere I went this was happening. So at one point I went to Neelam, and I said. You know, I told her what was happening, and I said, uh, "You know, the, the thought has come to give satsang, but I don't know how you do that. I don't, you know, what do you do to give satsang?" And, and Neelam always, always gave me really, really good advice. And her advice was, "Don't give it another thought." Hmm. She said, "If it's meant to happen, there's nothing you can do to stop it. If it's not meant to happen, nothing you can do will make it happen." And I'm, I'm, you know, have a very, very basically lazy, so I really like that kind of advice. <laughs> So I just said, oh, okay, I'll just let whatever happens happen. And uh, the very next day, one of the people who had been on this whole trip to India came up to me and said, hey, Nirmala, how would you like to uh, come and give satsang at my house in, in Seattle? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, as I, was, as I was saying, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Inside it, I was going, oh, this is how it happens. <laughs> and that is basically how, how it's happened mm-hmm. ever since. You know, that it just, I just wait for the invitation. So that awakening that you had there on the banks of the Ganges, um, did you, f- I mean, w- 
is that still your experience that everything is contained everything is the self everything is contained within the larger sort of you know back back to what we were talking about before the uh -huh. flexibility that yeah. exper that experience is like um is e you know as as easy for me as uh planning my day for tomorrow mm -hmm. you know if i sit down and and uh just give that a little bit of attention it starts to open up yeah but and it's not like in your face all the time that right kind of thing. it's right. not it's not like because like i said i could barely walk right, <laughs> after right. that experience, during that experience so it, yeah it it fluctuates in intensity but there's yeah. also that that deeper kind of conviction mm -hmm. that 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 is that it's always here that that's what i am and that's what i always was in fact i sometimes call it my non-awakening <laughs> because it's like I realized that's what was always true. And so, you know, it's like realizing that all there is is awakeness. And how, how does that awaken? How does awakeness awaken? It's like you can't <laughs> you can't do that part, you know. Yeah. So I sometimes call it my non awakening. No, it's interesting in terms of the the word flexibility, it, it's it's like um you know, it's 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 there. That that aspect is enlivened, you could say. And yes. and it kind of informs or enriches or inspires or guides maybe the more manifest specific aspects of your life. Yes. Um you know, kinda like uh, just to take a crude example, if if you had completed medical school, you wouldn't always be dwelling on the facts of that you had learned in medical school. But if someone came to you with a problem, you'd be able to deal with it because there was that sort of in, uh, that knowledge in, instilled in you. Yeah, yeah, it would just come out of you. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I, I sometimes I, I I think even more the more central thing is not the not the sense of. Uh, um, uh, you know, is this experience continuous? Is is whether or not you've developed a sense of trust mm -hmm. in that in that reality? Right. And the, exa the example I always use, like I'll ask you right now, Rick, can you, uh, do you have a car? A car? Yeah. yeah. Do you own yeah. a car? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Can, can you see it right now where you're sitting? Mm, nope. Do you doubt that it exists? Nope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like and that's it. Like I often say, even if God forbid you went out to where you parked your car, and it wasn't there. Would you would at that moment would you doubt that it exists? I figured it existed somewhere, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe you no longer in my position, <laughs> my possession. Yeah, yeah. You call the police. <laughs> right, right. So we we all have most of us have developed a a really strong trust in physical reality mm -hmm. that actually allows us to function without having you know we don't have the sense that you have to experience it all the time. In sure. order for it to be real, and you know, which which sometimes you know, when somebody when for the first time in their life they buy a brand new car, mm -hmm. there's there, suddenly there's a little bit of that again, yeah. right? Where they're always like peeking out the window and saying, "Yeah, oh, look at my new car," because <laughs> 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 they they can't quite believe it yet that they own a brand new car, you know. But for the most part, we just trust that when we put something in a drawer and we go away and we come back, it'll still be there, and that yeah. trust is that trust is based on a lot of experience. Right? That mm -hmm. that's what does build that sense of trust, and so my sense is that's the same thing that can happen with these bigger experiences of being. Is that you need to experience them, but the real gift, the real freedom that they bring to you is when you've had so many experiences of them, when you've had so much, you know, 
avail it's been so available to you that after a while you just trust yeah you just you just on a deep level you know that's true whether you're experiencing it or not just like you know your car exists whether you're experiencing it or not mm-hmm. and so that's yeah, they, so that's a bigger freedom they say that the final stroke of realization is the uh, is the dispelling of doubt you know the elimination yes. of doubt Yes. And that's just what you're saying. I mean, right. you know, I don't doubt that I have the car, although I think my wife might have taken it into town. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but again, uh, you don't doubt that it exists. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and so it's like, you know, you can sort of picture the classic seeker. It's like, oh, my God, when will I ever get there? And it's, you know, I can't, my life sucks and I have to get enlightened and yada, yada. Maybe I should go on another retreat. But, um, yeah, you know, and, and then even when they have a big experience. Yeah, was that it? Is was that gonna... it? And, and you know, and they try to hold on to it, which of course makes it go away faster, you know. And and they try and get it back, you know. And 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 so they're still in that place of doubt. They still they still don't really trust what they experienced. Yeah. So what you're saying is doubt kind of was dispelled, yes. and now you just kind of live in a simple, natural, easy state of trust, and you know, yeah. it's yeah. there. Yeah. It, it, and, and, and what's been really sweet, really rich in that is it comes back to what we were talking about, what I spoke about right at the, at the beginning of our conversation, that there now is this uh, ability to really enjoy and explore and appreciate the simplest, most ordinary experiences mm-hmm. that, that appear in life. And, and even experiences of, uh, you know, physical difficulty, getting ill, or having an uh, argument with my wife or losing something, you know, really precious, a good friend or something, and actually experiencing all the very human emotions. And because there's this trust, there's, no, there's, there's this uh, willingness to just go with that experience, just dive into it, you know, uh, like, like that minister told me, you know, just be really curious about everything. Yeah. And, and it, it turns out that, you know, that all of that, again, is, is like a, a facet of the jewel. All, all of that is, uh, is real, is part of reality. And it's all, it's all um, sacred. It's all beautiful. It's all yeah. worth it. This, this kind of brings up a couple of points. One, one of the things I heard you say in the songs that I listened to was, you know, you can just kind of plunge in, you know, just sort of don't worry about exhausting awareness or running out of it or yeah, anything like that. Yeah. Just, just go for it, you know? Right. And I thought, well, you know, I thought that might be misinterpreted as sort of uh, advocating hedonism, you know? Uh, I can mm-hmm. snort I can snort meth, I can go to prostitutes, I can do all kinds of crazy stuff, right. and I'm not going to run out of awareness. You know, people are going to pay the price for something like that. So sure. probably that's not what you meant. Um, you know, my, the, the antidote to all of that, to, the antidote to the indulgence mm-hmm. side, you know, is if you really are in a sense, plunging in with full awareness, mm-hmm. that, to me, that's the antidote to like, addictive processes. Stupid, stupid things. You doing, mean. doing stupid things. And, and also, if you're really paying attention, you know, I, I'll share, you know, year, this was like 30 years ago. I, um, for most of my life, I had this really, really uh, intense sweet tooth. You know, I, earlier I used the example of the plate of cookies because, you know, at that, that time that, in my that life, was you, right? <laughs> yeah, if there, if there was a plate of cookies, this is, you know, they ended up inside here. <laughs> they ended up in, in my stomach. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and yet I was also extremely sensitive to sugar. 
Like I was, you know, that's probably, you know, they say uh, on a physiological level, you often crave stuff that you're kind of like allergic to or reactive to. And so I did, you know, and I, and, and the antidote, the thing that, that like shifted that whole experience for me was it's like I, it's like I, I didn't expand my awareness in, in terms of distance. It's more like I, it's kind of like what I was saying about popping in time. It's like suddenly I, I learned to, um, when I looked at a plate of cookies, to imagine how I would feel in half an hour if yeah. I ate, if I ate them, mm-hmm. you know. And when you do that, especially if you're somebody who gets really nauseous and often ends up with a headache when they eat sugar, <laughs> yeah. then it was like, it's like if I, you know, if I held out a, a, a pill to you and said, here, take this pill, it'll make you nauseous and you'll have a headache. <laughs> right. No, thank you. You know, I'll, I'll pass, you know. <laughs> and so when someone holds out a plate of cookies and I included in my awareness, you know, I was, so, I was more complete in telling the truth about that plate of cookies by saying, I'm not going to feel that good if I eat these, especially if, I, if I'm on an empty stomach, you know, if I haven't. And then, and then with that greater awareness, I suddenly was no longer eating cookies. Interesting. No longer, yeah. And, of course, the obesity epidemic is on the news all the time. And, you know, you, you kind of get the feeling that people are trying to, they're trying to sort of fulfill themselves. Yeah. You know, by more and more. And the mayor of New York City just outlawed the super-duper <laughs> huge right. uh, soda drinks, you know, because there's such an obesity problem. Yes. Uh, but perhaps if people had that inner fulfillment, you know, gladly, yeah. then there wouldn't be this craving to get fulfillment from more and more and more and more food. Right. And also, again, even in a more relative sense, you know, in between those two places, if there was just more awareness of the actual experience. Consequences, yeah. Yeah, the, the, you know, within a, a slightly bigger time frame, mm-hmm. then, you know, some of, those, some of those cravings, like I said, it was just this weird thing. Suddenly, whenever I looked at sweets, I would, I would do this mental calculation that included how I would feel in half an hour. Yeah, and, and you know, what, what's nice about that, too, is that it, it did actually allow me to be flexible. Because if um, if I had a full stomach, if I just eaten a big meal, I could I, I discovered I could eat a little bit and not have all those symptoms. You know, it was it was so I you know if I ate a lot, I still would. But if I ate a little bit, I was okay. So it's like I found a balanced way of experience experiencing sweets. It's not that it wasn't like I never had to go cold turkey. You know, I just I just found yeah, a balanced balance. way. And, and it also allowed for moments where, like, when my grandmother had just baked me a plate of cookies, I could eat a cookie. Right, you know? not, not upset that, your grandmother. Yeah, and, and maybe say, gee, Grandma, can I take the rest home in a bag, you know, <laughs> and, then, and then throw them out when I got home. <laughs> yeah, it's actually verses in the Gita where yoga is defined as a state of balance in which, you know, you don't either overly indulge in or overly shun uh, various experiences. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's and then and then the the relative truth can can sort of unfold and function and you know keep it, it balance is more like a balancing. Yeah. Maybe that's yeah. what Buddha meant by the middle way. Also. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, Harkening back to a few minutes ago when we were talking about you know whether that experience you had in Rishikesh was retained and stabilized and so on and so forth, somebody sent in a question about um, abiding in the self. Um, what that really means, and would it be truly abiding if if one is still doing a regular meditation program twice daily, which is a jab at me because 
I've been meditating regularly for 44 years and I happen to really enjoy it. And she's saying, well, if you really were established, you wouldn't need to do that anymore. And I said, okay, fine, maybe I'm not really established, but I really enjoy it. (laughs) (laughs) It's extremely, uh, you know, nourishing. So would you say that, you know, I mean, different people have different paths and different habits and so on. And so, some people awaken without ever having meditated, and some people, uh, you know, meditate regularly sure. and so on. And maybe you keep doing what you're doing. Um, but would you say that meditation is likely to drop off when awakening has really dawned, or is it hard to? It's great. It's great that you asked me this question because mm-hmm. uh, my experience is the complete inverse of what you might expect. In that, I discovered meditation after my awakening. Mm. and and have fallen in love with it and and I meditate regularly and I never meditated before <laughs> <laughs> cool so my experience again the you know I, I you know I can't speak for anyone else's experience and and I I don't doubt that it's possible to uh move into a particular experience of of uh you know contact with it, fullness of the self and in a sense never Never lose it, even experientially. Let alone, you know, not sort of separate from whether or not you have this deep abiding trust in it. But that's that's not my experience. And like I said, what my experience brought me to was a place where that doesn't even matter anymore. Yeah. It's like it does. It it's so it's so available. I I trust it so completely that I don't I don't have any sense of lack when it's not happening. It's, it's, you know, just like you don't feel the lack of a car right now. Right. You know, it just doesn't compute because you know you got one, and when your wife gets home, you can go to the store if you want to. Um, and so, you know, from that place, I just discovered how sweet, how amazing it is to meditate. Mm-hmm. And so, and indirectly, in response to that person, you know, I I would, again, my perspective is that we all abide in the self, that we all are the self before we realize it during our realization of it and after our realization of it. And so, you know, whatever she's experiencing, whatever you're experiencing while you're meditating, whatever somebody down the street is experiencing when they're eating popcorn watching a movie, it's all part of the self. It's all, it's all worth experiencing. And, and it, you know, it might be kind of a truism that it seems that consciousness feels that way true, too, because... Consciousness seems to go to a lot of trouble to have different experiences. You know, it never it never makes a snowflake the same way twice. It never has this this whole experience we're speaking of called awakening the same way twice. You know, like I said, here I am, this guy who never meditated, and now uh, I, I love it. Now I'm, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm not. I don't think I'm addicted to it because it doesn't really matter to me if I if I don't. You know, if uh, then I just don't. But but whenever whenever the opportunity comes, I'd love to do it. Mm-hmm. I think there, the word meditation has different meanings, too, just as the word liquid has different meanings. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you're drinking some water right now. If you're drinking mm-hmm. uh, motor oil, it would be a different experience. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. So, I mean, there are kinds of meditation which are very, you know, I mean, I've read descriptions of certain types of Buddhist meditation where you're supposed to clench your teeth and force the thoughts out. And, you know, it's just like this really intense kind of thing. Uh, so if, if, if a person has even a flavor of that kind of association with the word, which I don't think my questioner did, but yeah. um, but if but so, I can see why one would um, proscribe, you know, a practice. Yeah, uh, yeah. Though, though, why not? Why not try that? And you know, it's like yes. 
sometimes by exaggerating something, you, you, that, that, that thing I talked about where the awareness suddenly becomes more complete. Yeah. You know, so you exaggerate the effort, you, you know, any kind of efforting, and, and that can, that can uh, pop you out of the illusion that the efforting is, is going to make you happy. You know. There's another question that the same person sent in. Uh, all these are actually specifically for you. Okay. Um, and uh, I don't know if you can answer this or not. I don't think I'd be able to because I'd have to look in the, up in some books and make sure I really understood my definitions here. But uh-huh. she, she asked, what is the difference between a jnani and a yogi? There is a massive confusion around this issue. Um, no felt sense of mission except to transmit the silence. I guess that's what a jnani would have, according to right. this uh, and, peop- and help people wake up from the dream. Only a jnani can um, awaken another. Uh, she's, and she's asking for you to contrast that with a yogi. Right. Any comments? Yeah. You know, even if you did look up the definitions, you would find a lot of different ones. Um, you know, I, I often say that the you know, we were talking earlier about different sizes of truth, and I, and I, I, I say there's a shorthand way to tell whether something's true or not, mm-hmm. and um, if or, or how true something is, and if if there are words, then it's not very true. Mm-hmm. You know, but once you put it into words, you've left out, you've, you've by just by definition, you've left something out, and so whatever I say about a yani, whatever book you open up and read the the description of. It's a partial description. It's not complete. And even that, even her description, you know, which is very, very beautiful, very, uh, I'm sure, true in a lot of cases. But I'm also, I'm also sure there are lots of yanis who don't have any desire to transmit or teach or awaken anybody because, you know, what's the point? Is like where, you know, a certain, a certain depth of realization. Everybody you look at is so so incredibly awake that what what, what, were, what are you going to teach them? What are you going to show to them? Mm. Um, and and so you know that's another definition, right? But that is that the definition of yanis? Is that the experience of every yani? No. Yeah. And and the same thing. Anything you say about a yogi, it would be it would be true of some yogis. But not all. I mean, what about Yogi Bear? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I heard a funny story about him yesterday. He was being interviewed by uh, Bryant Gumble, and Bryant Gumble said, "Okay, just give me a, a kind of like a one-word answer to uh, the following things. You know, just uh, I'm going to give you some names. I want a one-word answer." And so he said, "Okay, Mickey Mantle." And Yogi Bear said, "What about him?" <laughs> and, and I was actually referring to Yogi Bear, the cartoon character. Oh, the cartoon character. Oh, there were, yeah, Yogi Bear was, is a source of great uh, spiritual yeah. wisdom. Actually, if you look at some of his quotes. Sure, sure. And so you know, and, I mean, you know, that's I'm, that's just playing with the word Yogi, but it is just a word, and it is, and no one can really give a final definition, and no, and you know why. Uh, and if you do, you know, in a sense, that can be used to then deny or reject, you know, the experience of a yogi who is having a different experience, or yeah. to deny or, you know, uh, uh, reject the experiences of true nature that somebody's having just because it doesn't fit, you know, your definition of a yani. And and people do that even to their own experience. You know, it's like the, like the question before about is it an abiding experience? You know, when that's held so rigidly, 
then people who are having genuine experiences and genuine realizations and then they wake up the next day all contracted and then they and they it's like they just throw the baby out with the bathwater they say well that can't have been a true realization because look i'm not abiding right. and so they it's like that that rigidity of definition is is the or the, the, they're expecting the sort of profundity and flashiness that it <coughs> had initially to be yeah. with them all the time, and when that kind of gets integrated and they, they kind of take it for granted, then you know where did it go? Exactly, and so you know, it, it it's not that there's anything wrong with words, you know, or with definitions, or with uh, even even you know like finely discriminating and coming up with an even finer description of something. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you recognize that. It, it, you know, it's just once it starts coming out of your mouth, once it's in a book, it, it's just it, it's by its nature not complete. You yeah. can enjoy it. It might it might be the piece of the puzzle that you that is just what was missing for you. Mm. You know, a, a perspective, an understanding, a, a definition that you know in that moment is actually a fairly profound truth because again, it allows your being to relax. You know the other the other experiential quality of some, when you experience something that's truer is it quiets the mind because you you have less to think about. You know, even if I even if I just give you directions to the post office, you suddenly have one less thing to think about. And if I you know somehow life or I somehow evoke in you a really really big truth, you suddenly have nothing to think about. There's nothing left to figure out, even, you know, who is and isn't a Yanni, what is and isn't a Yanni. <laughs> it, from the from actual experience of a really big truth, those, those things kind of fall away. They Another point that came to mind when you were speaking, which is that there are, there are degrees of realization, you know. I mean, when you get your bachelor's degree, let's say, uh, mm. you've got a bachelor's degree. Then you go on and get your master's degree. You still have a bachelor's degree, you know, and then you go on and get your Ph.D., you, and you still you still have your master's and your bachelor's degrees and so on. Right. So you know there can be an unfoldment in which I don't know what the exact order would be, but there's you know this sort of the jnana aspect and the bhakti aspect yeah. of devotion and and uh, you know the sort of yogi realization oneness aspect and yes. I don't know what they'd all be, but um, so it's kind of like not an either or kind of this or that kind of situation. Right. And my, my, and my sense is, you know, what any any experience that at least that I've had so far, mm -hmm. always just seems like the a new beginning. Mm. Like, okay, you know, now what? Because <laughs> it, it 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 doesn't stop. Nothing, you know, life. Like I said, one of the fundamental qualities of being is this movement, this aliveness, and you know, it's very possible. I mean, I sometimes even like uh, hypothesize, you know, like, okay, let's say consciousness itself has completely woken up and all illusion has, has in a sense, fallen away because it's like it's all, it's all being, been seen through so completely that it's like my sweet tooth, you know. <laughs> the whole interest in, in illusion has fallen away. It's just this pure stillness, infinite presence, nothing happening, my sense is that somewhere in there, somewhere within that consciousness, he wants back in or out? Out. <laughs> somewhere within that infinite, pure stillness, that there's a, like basically a thought. Something's going to arise. Something like, wow, 
that was fun. Let's do it again. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then, woo, you know, the universe <laughs> pops into existence again, only this time, you know, gravity works the opposite. It pushes <laughs> things apart, you know. And, you know, it just says, let's do it again, only different, you know. Mm. Let's try it all again. And so, I don't know, when you get even on an individual level, it seems like from a certain place of expansion, there's really only one way to go, which is to kind of get wrapped up in something again. Mm-hmm. And from a certain depth, of, I, think that's, I think that's why sometimes people have these big openings, big awakenings in the, in the most contracted moments of their life. Mm-hmm. Because from a place of like utter unbearable contraction, there, there really is only one direction to go. You know, that you can't, it's like a certain point, it's like it, maybe you can contract a little more, but then oh, but, you know, at a certain point you can't do it anymore. And it's like sometimes then when you stop, it's like, it's like it just goes all the way. You know, mm-hmm. it, it drops away completely in that moment, in that instant. Hmm. So who knows? You know, it's like, what is it? Again, is it better to be expanded or is it just different? Hmm. Is it better to be Yanni or just different? I'm glad you brought that up because towards the end of my interviews, I, I usually ask people, you know, well, where do you go from here? You know, how, do you have a sense of continuing unfoldment or, you know, development or whatever? And some of them say no. Uh, they say, where could I go? You know, it seems like this is it. And I, but a, lo- a lot of them and many whom I would consider to be very spiritually mature say, I don't know where it goes from here. Yeah. You know, it's just like Lajashanti, for instance, just seems to be unfolding more and more, you know, deeper, yeah, myth, yes, deeper yes. and deeper into the mystery. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, there's all kinds of new challenges that you as an individual are going to have to face, you know, like, a, like getting old, you know. Yeah. It's like to say that, that you're done with getting old, well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> and, and even if you are literally done with getting old, then guess what? That means you're dying. Yeah. And it's like, and then what? wow. Yeah, and then what? You know, <laughs> it's like, who can, who can say what, what, you know, what happens after that? Especially if there has been a huge realization in this life. Maybe the, the, the doorways that open at death are, are much more profound. You know, the possibilities yeah. that present themselves. You, you, might, know, I, I hold you might be greeted by a little committee who says, very well done, now wait till you see the next assignment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I hold everything lightly, but there's, that guy, there's this guy here in Sedona where I live, uh, David Hawkins, who uh-huh. created the scale of consciousness. You know, oh, yeah, yeah, like num- numeric, yeah. Yeah, numerical value. Mm-hmm. And he just arbitrarily said zero to a thousand. But then at some point he explains a thousand is just the highest level of consciousness that the human form can withstand. Mm, interesting. And, and, you know, he, in one, you know, he uses, uh, this is a part I hold very, very lightly, but he uses muscle testing to, to right. determine things. And he, in one of his later books, he actually talks about how the, they got curious about it and they started discovering that when they checked, there actually were beings that went way beyond a thousand. They just oh, yeah. were not physical you know they yeah. we can't they weren't walking around on this planet and, and in fact beings that go up to 50,000 hmm. that they that they identified and you know it's also it's interesting because it's a logarithmic scale so each, I have friends who actually perceive those beings as clearly as you and I perceive ourselves yeah. here and, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to be interviewing one anonymously in a month or two right um, yeah want to go on so, camera 
But, yeah, uh, you know, in the Vedic cosmology, they have what they call 16 kalas, which are supposed to be like levels of evolution. And, yeah. you know, it starts out with rocks and stuff like that. And, yeah. and the yeah. humans are supposed to be within like maybe, f I don't know, four and eight between that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and the greatest cool. saint who ever walked the planet would be eight. But yeah. then beyond that, there's another eight. Yeah, I know. I mean, who knows what that's like? Those eight beyond <laughs> all of this, beyond you know what we call enlightenment. It's like, wow, what a, what a trip. <laughs> nice. Well, so yeah, so check check with me in a couple thousand years. I'll tell you what I. We'll do. Yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, have spiritual arm wrestling or something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, well, like I said, we'll be sitting in a bar watching the galaxies collide. <laughs> right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The restaurant at the end of the universe. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Douglas Adams thing. Hitchhiker's right. Guide to the Galaxy. Right. Okay. On that profoundly frivolous note, let's let's wrap it up. Um, right. This has been a joy, as I knew it would be. Mm, yeah. Uh, real pleasure. Yeah. Um, let me just kind of make some concluding. You want to make any concluding remarks before I do? Just, just thanks. I, I really appreciate having this time to chat. Good. Yeah. Um, so to those who've stayed with us for the last two hours, um, you've been listening to an interview with Nirmala, uh, who lives in Sedona, as he said, uh, and, but travels around uh, occasionally, gives satsangs, and also has a website. Uh, what is it? Endless satsang. En yeah, endless-satsang.org. Dot com. Dot com. And and, and, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, you know, you were probably going to mention there's, there's all kinds of free stuff in there. There, there are whole books they can download for free and videos and audios and articles. And, you know, they, you could spend hours on there just poems. Yeah, po a, book, a book, book of poetry that they can download the whole thing for free. There's also, um, I'll point it out because we, you know, we talked a lot this time about the the way our heart our being discriminates how true things are by the expansions and contractions and one of the free downloads on the free ebooks page on my site is part two of my book uh, living from the heart mm -hmm. and part two is all about the heart's wisdom it's all about how how we naturally uh, discriminate how true things are if we listen to our heart nice so. yeah I listened to that when I was you know in the last week or so it was very enjoyable yeah <laughs> Good. So um, I'll be linking to, in case you're driving in your car and you didn't have a chance to write that down, I'll be linking to uh, his uh, Nimla's site from mine, batgap.com, um, so you'll see that there. And also, of course, this is an ongoing series, so if you go to batgap.com, you'll see all the other ones archived, and each week a new one is posted. And so if you'd like to be notified each time a new interview is posted, you can just sign up for the email newsletter there. It's just a one-a-week email. Um, and if you, you know, if you're listening to this on YouTube, you can just subscribe to the YouTube channel, and YouTube will tell you when there's a new one. It's also available as a podcast, so you can listen to just the audio while you're riding your horse or whatever. Uh, uh, so great, thank you, and uh, thanks to those who are listening. Oh, and there's a donate button there. I should mention. I don't like to be crass about it, but it does help to have a regular flow of donations. And there's a page which explains what I do with them. So um, thanks to everyone. Thanks to Nirmala. And we'll see you next time.